Hello, everyone. Welcome to day 21 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 Day Writing Challenge First Draft Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. And today is our last day of Point of View Week. Uh, yes, we actually start our weeks on Tuesdays, so hopefully it's not too confusing. Um, we're talking today about voice with Evie Bartels and Rachel Berenbaum, we think is uh, trying to get her kids off to school. So we're still waiting for her, but we've got Evie anyway to, to get us going. Evie is a nonfiction writer, a former Newtonville Books bookseller and a Grub Street instructor with an MFA from Columbia University. Her writing has appeared in Catapult, Electric Literature, The Rumpus, The Millions, The Toast, and The Butter, among others. She is the author of Good Grief on Loving Pets, Here and, Here and Hereafter, a narrative nonfiction book about the world of loving and losing animals, exploring the singular nature of our bonds with our companion animals and how best to grieve for them once they've passed away. E.B. lives in Massachusetts with her husband, Richie, and their many, many pets. And as you can see behind her, if you are actually watching the live webinar, she's got this amazing gallery, pet gallery behind her. Um, okay, so I'm just going to start out getting kind of my definition of voice, and then I'm going to allow E.B. to kind of uh, go for it. So what is voice? Um, Voice is something that you create with your author's style. So, so style are the, the specific choices that you make as you're creating your sentences that are usually made out of uh, the syntax that you create your sentences with and, the, and your diction choices. Um, and that kind of creates the, the voice on the page that comes out of the page. Authors tend to have or will often have a very similar style across all their books. Um, and I tend to think about, particularly if they have themselves a very strong style. So one of my favorite authors, Kent Harriff, has a very, very strong narrative style. And a lot of his books have that, have that style in it. However, you do want to pay attention to who your narrator is and who your character is and, and, and what is the environment of your story to alter your style, to create a different voice for each book. And that can be actually be very, very hard. And some authors are just don't do it and they just throw it aside and just are like, well, I'm gonna write in my voice. Um, voice and style can also be made of not just syntax and diction, but how often, uh, what kind of language you're, you're using, which is diction, but also um, how many words you put in a sentence, um, how long your sentences are, how long your paragraphs are, how often you use metaphors and similes, how often you use dialogue versus um, uh, narration, uh, uh, how much white space you have on the page. Uh, all, of these, all of these choices work into voice. Um, and uh, so I'm going to let uh, Evie get started on us. And Evie, for you, what is voice? And uh, how, um, how have you used it in your work? And then Rachel, I think, is knocking on the door trying to get in, and we'll try to get, a, get in. Uh, but Evie, this is interesting because we've got Evie as a nonfiction writer, mostly. So Evie, how have you used voice in your work? Well, Michelle, thanks for having me. Um, and I, I love talking about this subject because it's something I feel like I thought a lot about um, with this book in particular. So, well, I guess first speaking more broadly to me, voice is, you know, a lot of what you said, it's sort of like with nonfiction, I feel like it's figuring out how you want to present yourself on the page, right? Because you know, when I have students who are writing memoir, you know, they're thinking, how do I fit my whole person onto the page? And you can't, right? You're always picking and choosing what parts of yourself to represent. And I think 
how you represent your voice is like another choice in that decision. So my book, let me show you, obviously I have to show you my book. Um, It's nonfiction and it's about how we mourn our pets when they die, which can be a really heavy and sad topic if you're somebody who's loved animals and lost animals. So I was thinking a lot about sort of how do I talk about it? Like when I talk about this subject to other people um, and also how do I, I want people to kind of absorb this information to me that's sort of like how voices as well like how do you want to get it across um and so i wanted to try to figure out how to balance this mix of both being very earnest and sincere about how sad and hard it is when you lose a pet um but also to me i i deal with a lot of sad stuff through kind of dark humor and also to me there's also like a certain absurdity in having pets right like let me fall in love with this animal that's then going to just die in 10 years. And it's kind of funny. So I, excuse me, I feel like there's a a nice uh, mix that I was trying to get at of sort of humor and darkness and sincerity and sarcasm all sort of together. Um, And I also, so also that's the tone of the book. I mean, for you, and these, these terms are really difficult style, voice, tone. Do you find, I mean, they have a lot of overlap. So for you is, is the voice of your book and the tone you're going for very similar in that way? I think so. I think there's, um, I mean, I think especially with nonfiction, there's maybe more overlap than with fiction, right? Because I think with fiction, you have different characters, maybe who have different sort of voices, or even, I don't know, at least in some books I've read, like different chapters can kind of have different tones about them. Um, So for me, it was sort of more one and the same. I'd also say that the voice was something I was thinking about a lot with my book as a blend of memoir and research. And I think in early drafts, my editor would often call me out on um, having this very sort of conversational voice when I was telling the personal stories about the pets I'd had. And then I would switch and I would suddenly be like, and now let me put on my research hat and tell you all these cool facts about like horse funerals or whatever it was. And so my editor was really diligent about flagging those places where she felt like suddenly there was a disconnect in my voice. And so I, I worked really hard to kind of look at the conversational parts and figure out, okay, what words do I use there? What rhythm and sounds, you know, when I, and I did a lot of reading out loud actually to try to make the research parts then sound more like my regular conversational voice parts. If that right. And yeah, no, that's important because otherwise the reader gets completely jarred if you're, if you're changing voice and if they fall in love with a certain voice in the book and then they hit a part that's just <laughs> completely different, yeah. it could be exciting and interesting, but it could also be um, really distancing. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Rachel, welcome Rachel this morning. Hello. Um, Hi, I'm sorry I was running a little bit late. That's okay. I had a hard uh, time logging on. Yes, that's happened. Okay, so Rachel <laughs> is the author of the critically acclaimed novels, Atomic Anna and A Bend in the Stars. She is a prolific writer and reviewer, and she very much is very prolific. Her work has appeared in the LA Review of Books, Harper's Bazaar, and more. She is a scholar in residence at the Hadassah Brandeis Institute at Brandeis. I love Brandeis, by the way. I taught there for a while, so I love that. And and she is the founder host of the podcast Debut Spotlight. She has degrees from Harvard in business and literature and philosophy, so she knows a few things. Um, And she is an elected member of Town Meeting in Brookline, Massachusetts. I didn't know that either. Rachel, I don't know how you do all you do. Okay. But mostly, I want you to talk about voice for you, because you've used uh, multiple uh, perspectives in your books. Um, And uh, yeah, how have you dealt with voice? What does voice even mean to you? 
So good morning. Hi, everybody. Hi, Michelle. Hi, EB. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I love your series. I'm a huge fan of yours, Michelle. So thank you. <laughs> and I feel like you could be running every one of these seminars um, without us. But um, my my I think with the voice in every book that I've written, um, uh, and there have been many, only two were published, but I have written many. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I always uh, find like one or two characters pretty quickly, but then there are always a couple um, that I struggle with, right? That I have a really hard time to figure out, um, you know, like, what are they thinking? What's in their head? Um, and in this book, uh, Yasha was a character in Atomic Anna that I really struggled with. And I got this advice um, while I was writing Bend in the Stars from a friend of mine who had um, published a few books. And she said, you know, what you one thing you could do is dress up as the character for the yeah. day. Right. And do everything that character would do. And I was writing um, I was having a hard time with Dima for Bend in the Stars for that one. And I was like, well, he wears black. He's like an old sailor and he drinks vodka and smokes all day. She's like, great, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> you know, in 19, I don't think Russia. he took up, I don't think he took up smoking. <laughs> no, I didn't. But, but that moment, that idea of like, but I did spend a day sort of thinking, what would he have for breakfast? You know, would he drink tea or would he have coffee or would he just go straight for the vodka? Right. I, like, What would he do right now? So he has an extra hour of free time. Obviously he doesn't have the internet, right. To check his email. Like what's he going to do? And so finding his a voice like that, spending a whole day thinking, what would your character do for me helps immensely because, you know, these, it's these little details, as she said, um, how he takes his tea that really makes the novel. Right. And it seems crazy, but if the reader reads if it, you know, oh, and he added three spoonfuls, you know, to two cc's of tea that tells you so much about the character. Yes. So, um, I think that's actually called method acting. Yes. Which yes. I would never actually be an actress, but, but that idea. <laughs> you don't have to be because you're a best selling author. Right. Well, so I can write it instead. Right. Yeah. So I just thought that was so helpful. So now anytime I'm having trouble, I sit around like, how would they take their tea? What would they have done today? Right. And for me, that's how I get it. Try to get into the voice. Yeah. And some people listen to music um, that they actually yeah. have a certain certain songs or certain playlists that's associated with certain um, uh, voices. Um, when I'm having trouble with a voice, I, I, I do a little bit more of what Evie does. And I also I, I always read and I go to, to books like this is the sort of voice I'm going for so that, so that I, and I usually, if I'm working on that particular voice that day, I'll, I'll read that those passages aloud from, from a favorite author's book that, that has the, the tone or pitch or the style that I really love um, just to kind of get it inside me. And then I can kind of speak through that. And then once I have the voice, I can then, I usually always read over those passages, um, the days that I'm writing right before I surf, first write it so that I can actually, um, again, try to enter that place, um, just like Rachel's, you know, thinking about the tea, entering the voice in that place, and then and writing forward from that. Um, Evie, so were you able to, you, so you went into like looking at your, your, your language style, your sentence style, and everything to kind of streamline that. I mean, so that would have made a lot of changes. What sort of choices did you find that you were making in your conversational parts that you weren't making in others where you're using just a much more uh less elevated language um yeah go ahead uh no i um 
I definitely, I started to notice when I would use really like jargony words, especially because, so I started like thinking about this book 10 years ago, this fall. So I've been researching it on and off for a long time. And I feel like I just got so immersed in this world that sometimes like I would just start throwing around phrases that like my, um, like the pet aftercare industry, for example, which is like everybody who works with like an animal's body after the animal dies. And my editor was just like, what does this mean? You know what I mean? It was like too, like I was too like in it. So I started to flag like words that felt like jargon or words that felt like, um, I'm really glad you brought up Michelle, actually what you read influencing what you write, because I'm very pro like read things that you want your book to feel like. So I read a ton of Mary Roach because I love her very dark, funny humor. And so I was trying to read that to observe her, absorb her voice. But at the same time, I was also reading some of these like incredible academic papers about like animal mummies in Egypt or like pet death rituals in Japan. But then I would notice that then after I read those and I would write, then I would sometimes be doing a lot of like, however, and indubitably and like very like formal academic words. So yeah, I think I would just go through and start to notice like, okay, I didn't say like, however, as much in the conversational part, but as soon as I started talking about research, I was like throwing in tons of however. So I like And I find like reading out loud is such a like lifesaver because that's the only way I catch those things is like all of a sudden I could hear my voice change, you know, when I was reading it out loud. So, um, yeah, I think I just would notice like, is that a word that I would use when I'm like talking to my friend over drinks? Like probably not. So then I would try to like cut those things out because I, I, at least for this book, I really wanted the voice of it to feel like you're going through a hard time. You just lost a pet and I'm here for you. We're chatting, you know, like I didn't want it to feel like a lecture. I didn't want it to feel like, you know, you have to like not be thinking about your feelings because you have to take in this very like serious formal information, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so that's really important in looking at the elevation of your diction. um, And then also because Agents and editors will always say, oh, I want a strong voice. I want a strong voice. And they do want a strong voice, but they want a certain kind Kind of strong voice and, I, and they want a strong voice I think that is that people can um, relate to can kind of understand unless you're creating a voice of someone of a character that's comically snobby and 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 erudite and uh, uh, working above everybody um, and there, there's also the problem that you hear about is that a voice might seem too writerly or that the voice is trying too hard to sound nice, impressive, beautiful, sound like a writer. Um, and so that's a disease um, that I have fallen prey to in my work. Sometimes I always have to get out of my work or try to, um, but that's something else to be to watch out for. Rachel, have you dealt with any diseases of these? Oh, and I also, <laughs> that, that question, and how do you work between the different voices in your book? Yeah. They're both uh- questions. I mean, I think that switching between voices is really hard um, because like, I mean, you guys know this when you have a conversation between two people, right? You have each person has a different tick or a different way that they, you know, structure a phrase or things they like to come back to. 
And so I find it hard sometimes to do like to go through dialogue straight. So instead I might just read one person's dialogue, right? Like skipping the other lines yeah. just yeah. to make sure that I'm doing the right, you know, even the pace, the, you know, some people speak with longs, run on sentences and some are short little quips, right? And so I have to like stay in that one head. Um, and, it, and it's hard because the other thing is um, a tip that I hear a lot about voice and dialogue is, um, you know, well, that wouldn't happen in real life. Like try to make it sound like real life. Um, but I think a lot of times um, in fiction, and even if you write a conversation the way it might've happened in real life, people don't believe it. Right. right. So there's there's sort of like this balance of you might actually speak that way or the character that you're modeling, you know, someone on. Or, right. They might actually speak that way, but you can't even write it that way. So you need to sort of go through and think about it. Um, and a lot of times I will go back to um, if I'm reading, like, look for the most recent book that I read that I loved. Right. And go back yeah. to that dialogue and say, like, how did this brilliant writer do it? And, uh, you know, try to sort of follow that pace sometimes. Like I just find even if, if I'm having a hard time getting started, if I put in, like, if I just type up somebody else's first paragraph or their dialogue, I have an easier time getting into it. I'm like, oh, right. All right. She's a master. She's a master. That's how she does it. And then I quickly switch to my document <laughs> and I yeah. sometimes get it better. <laughs> exactly. I mean, what you're talking about dialogue is very important because, and we're also going to have a later um, episode on dialogue, but I would always send my students out. And, and so my BU students would be, my Boston University students would be very nervous about this. Um, my, my Brandeis students weren't, um, but I'd send them out and I'd say, go to a cafe, go somewhere, try to get off campus because that's going to be more interesting. <laughs> yeah. And sit as close as you can to a group of people or a couple or whatever and eavesdrop and write down their dialogue just so you can kind of get a sense of their rhythms and, and what they're talking about. The problem is, however, if you actually wrote down someone's dialogue word for word in, in a, and then actually reproduced it on the page for someone to read, it would be horrible. Yes. Um, because exactly. it's repetitive, it's boring. It's so, so we always say, well, you, it, it needs to sound the way people talk, but actually it doesn't. Exactly. Um, so normally I'd have my students have to um, uh, then you know, take what they, the trans, then, then take what they have written down, the transcript, um, or whatever close to it, and then edit it according to how it would have to be work for a particular story. Yeah. Um, and, but this is all very important, you know, because it can be a nightmare to think about going between voices, going between dialogue, but that's also about getting to know your characters. Um, like, Evie, how did you deal with, you must have also represented other people like experts and other people and people that you interviewed on the page was that difficult for you in terms of getting their voices across yeah well I mean what you said about like I deal with a ton of transcripts in my writing <laughs> as a nonfiction person so like you know I would have these great conversations with experts I'd record them I would otter by the way if any of you are doing interviews is like the most amazing transcription software um but then you look at the transcript and you're right. You're like, these are incomplete sentences or they keep repeating the same point in slightly different words. And so I found that I would actually, um, the transcripts are really helpful when trying to like, you know, copy quotes and stuff. But I found I would listen to the recordings a lot because then I could kind of absorb what their style of speaking was or what their certain tics are. Um, and 
I, I tried to pay attention to, again, like what words each person used, right? Like if someone always said, you know, pet parent, as opposed to pet owner, I always made sure to like do that when I was quoting them. Or if somebody, you know, was very serious or someone was always cracking a lot of jokes, like I would try to kind of get that essence. And I remember, I don't remember what class this was in now, but someone once told me that like the human brain obviously cannot remember a conversation like word for word, right? Like may, maybe there's some person with a special type of brain who can, but most people can't. And so more what you remember is like the essence of a conversation, like how that conversation made you feel. And so I would feel, I, I would try really hard to capture that feeling more in like the quotes and the exchange, as opposed to thinking about like, this is the exact word for word, which makes it sound like yeah. I made up things, but I wasn't, I was just picking stuff from the transcript that I felt like got the essence of the conversation. Yeah. 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 You have to, you yeah. know, um, EB, the other thing that you're really good at is, um, so you were really good at the, you know, the dialogue itself, but also you set the stage of that person's voice, right? <laughs> so you give us the feel for the pet or, you know, um, the taxidermy service, like what it was like to be in the room or, you know, wherever they were, right? Because that's all part of giving people the voice is, is putting us in that moment of you've lost your pet or you, you know, what are you yeah. going to do with them? Excellent. Yeah. And so we've, oh, yeah. go ahead, E.B. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say, Rachel, I think you did that too, because at the beginning of like the chapters in Atomic Anna, Rachel very much shows like, this is the character whose point of view we're going to be in. And like, this is the time. And I feel like just giving your readers like little indicators, like, oh, we're in a taxidermy studio <laughs> or, oh, we're in like the eighties, whatever it is. Like it helps right. you set up the voice before you even start reading. I Absolutely. Think. That's yeah. so good. And that's not something we generally think about in terms of setting up voice. So yeah. Susan in the chat is asking, are there some other tricks to come up with that voice? Because I have said in the past, and I will still say that if you're using first person, you better damn well have a reason for it because it needs to seem very individual. It needs to seem, otherwise, why are you using first person? Um, because it has so many restrictions on you, um, unless you have a really strong voice that's getting across the character. So Rachel, you talked about trying to figure out the T. The T. We talked about listening to music, talked about reading other books. Are there other tricks that you've come up with to trying to get the voice? I mean, I, I will write and write and write and hit my head on a particular character to try to get their voice. And if I can't get their voice, I feel that the book is not even working. Like I actually go to a different project altogether. Wow. Um, wow. I mean, I think that I will um, sometimes watch movies um, at like clips of movies that I know and watch characters that are a little bit similar to look for their tics. Like every time this person is lying, they touch their ear, right? Or yeah. every time someone is, um, you know, when they're yelling, he, you know, he has his hands in his pockets. Um, so these little sort of gestures. And I find that watching movies helps me see them more. Or um, when I'm on the T, I look for people. The T is the subway here in Boston, yes. right? And I find that's a very good place to find characters and people and like see how they're talking. And, you know, you can find new love, young love, old love, right? And you can get little glimpses. And I, I love those that help me figure out how to put those into the book. And Susan also mentions emotion. Um, I mean, I, I think of one of my favorite short stories is by Tony Early. It's called The Prophet's the prophet of Jupiter. And that character is so blocked emotionally that it, that it enters his voice and actually 
only when um, he's feeling very strong emotions will he let something out. It's almost like a break in the dam when he does it. And so also thinking of metaphors that that link you to who your character is or what they sound like. So for him, it's a he's just dammed up. Um, and so every now and then he'd let um, uh, emotion out. It would actually, Tony Early would write it in um, italics. Um, and he also, because he was so blocked, his way of thinking and seeing and talking about himself was always about talking about others mm -hmm. instead of him, because he just couldn't face himself. So really thinking about how does my character think? Uh, what, what are the things that they actually would say? Um, how do they express the things about themselves? Psychologically, um, where are they emotionally in terms of how well knowing of themselves they are or not? Um, also, if a character is really understands themselves well and, and really um, understands their own emotional makeup really well, they can be really, really annoying on the page. <laughs> Because they're just like had too much therapy, I think. Like, you know, oh, this person is way too high functioning. This just doesn't work. Um, we also get, have you, so another, um, Autumn is asking about sounding writerly. I've been, I've been listening to Toni Morrison. And I find that some writers, the beauty of their prose is the strength of their work. How do I decide what to strike and what to keep? How do I judge what's serving the story? Rachel, how about you? Have you ever felt like you're going too far in, in a direction and on the page? Yeah, so I wanted to, um, I just had to Google, sometimes I'm bad with titles. So Otessa Moshefog has written um, Eileen and My Year of yeah. uh, Rest and Relaxation. And I feel like she, in those two books, was just a master at character study. And yes. I loved those two books. And so when I am feeling blocked or like, how do you write crazy or like obsessed or these, right? These, these heads I can't get into. I will sometimes go back to her, to those two books to really figure out because um, those perspectives, I think that's an example of a master that I return to again and again of there's just those character studies, but sorry. Okay. Um, so what was the question you were asking? Um, <laughs> have you ever felt like you were being too writerly on the page? Um, I don't know. I think more, I feel like I'm writing really bad pages today. I feel mm. that. <laughs> and, and then I still keep writing, even though I know I'm writing terrible, terrible pages because I have to write through bad to get to good. And that's just which kind of how, means you're uh, not in the voice. I mean, Edie, you probably felt at times that you weren't in the voice that you were working on. So how did you get yourself into that conversation of voice just when you emotionally just weren't inside it? I mean, this is, I feel like a lot of people's worst nightmare, but often when I was listening to the recordings of my interviews, like my instinct is I want to fast forward the part where I'm asking questions and responding, but I actually found listening to how I interacted with the people I was interviewing helped me sort of pin down that voice as well. Like listening to recordings of myself, even though I, I hate it, but also it, it helps. Um, and I actually, I noticed in the chat, someone asked about sort of evolving like words or like if your protagonist grows up because in my book like the very first chapter is like me is like in kindergarten having a fish die and like by the time the book ends it's like me as an adult with my my dog Seymour who I currently have and I do think like you can you can play around with that maybe it's a little different in fiction but I find that you have to find a balance where you can't use too childlike words or languages, uh, language, because then it's just, it feels, again, like we've been talking about not being believable, because then I think the, the reader is like, well, a child didn't actually write this book. You know, it's an adult looking back as a child. So I feel like 
don't be afraid to use adult language even when you're embodying a child perspective if that makes yeah. sense yeah, and always re- yeah, and always remember too, you if, if in fiction at least your narrator might be very separate from that child voice, and so your narrator could have a completely different have a completely different voice. Um, Mary, if we can quickly get to this because it's a good question, the difference. How do you differentiate on the page when a character is speaking versus when they're expressing their internal thoughts? I mean, I think I think in when an actual dialogue, they're going to be much less articulate, right? And and much less willing to um, express possibly as fully um, what they think and feel as they would internally, unless they are. You can also use if you need your people to express things in dialogue, you can make them very sleepy. You can make them drunk. You can have them locked in a room or or in an elevator for hours. That's going to actually bring out <laughs> some of those. That's going to take down those walls so that they actually are beginning to speak through that internal voice. Uh, Rachel, for you, have you found kind of a difficulty between working between the internal and then how they speak uh, um, in dialogue? Yeah, I think so. But I think that um, this is where you rely on your description of the uh, room around you or the situation around you. So um, like EB does this when she describes the uh, cemeteries that she visits. So you, you can say cemetery and people think, oh, sadness, right? Loss. But when she talks about, you know, the what people write on the headstones for their pets or like the ceremonies that happened in Japan, right? Like when you talk about you describe what you're seeing. So if you have a very elaborate monument for a pet that you've lost, right? In that description is the sadness and the celebration of a life, right? So then if you go into dialogue from that, you've already set the scene, right? So that you your dialogue doesn't have to be doing as much because the scene and the feelings are in how you describe where they are. Or for me, when I'm writing, you know, it would be like, did they trip while they were talking? Right. And that's a cue of like, yeah. maybe they were nervous or scared, right? So you you create these external details to give expression and voice um, that's outside of the dialogue itself. Because I think of the dialogue when you're reading as more like a rest for the reader, right? They sort of skip through quickly, usually. You don't really have yeah. heavy stuff in there. Yeah, it's a breath of air. Dialogue yeah. is a breath of air. Okay, yeah. we're going to have to go. But so I think the, the basic thing is knowing the voice of, of your narrator, of your book, of, of the dialogue is really about knowing your characters. And this is why I do hit my head against that, that wall of trying to get the voice right in a book, because otherwise I feel like I don't know the character enough to keep traveling forward, okay? So this is also about character development. So it might just be that you need to think much more carefully. Again, like what Rachel talked about, about what kind of tea does my character actually drink? And are there a few little drops of vodka in, in the morning? And uh, I don't, I haven't had drops of vodka this morning. So I think that's the only way I'm functional. All right. Um, I need to get everyone back to your desk. Tomorrow we're starting our whole week talking about how to construct your early pages. Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about the idea called the unstable ground situation. And if you have no idea what that is, then you have to listen. We're going to have Rosie Sultan and Stephen Lee Bieber helping us. Um, and if you support what you're doing, uh, what we're doing, if you like what we're doing, please share, follow, um, and even rate our 7 a.m. Novelist podcast. We're on Substack. We're on other podcast platforms. And you can also find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Evie and Rachel, thank you so much for getting up in the morning with us. 
Thank and you so much. This is thank amazing. You. Thank you, everyone. Thank it's you. back to your desk. Have a good writing week. All right. Right Goodbye. on. Found what you lost. Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why there is nothing here.